like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, the latter part of James chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 13 this morning in our series through the letter of James. And I want to begin by asking you how you're doing from last week's text. How are you doing with bridling your tongue? Are you doing okay? What's that chuckle? <laughs> okay. There's that chuckle. I don't think it was. Yes, I'm awesome. <laughs> Nothing like the Christian family that says, let's stop hollering, we're going to church. <laughs> Maybe a segue that takes us from the first half of James, or at least most of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, which we were last week, which was on the, way, the, the peril of the tongue, the dangers of the tongue, maybe a good transition from that to this next passage on the heart of wisdom, verses 13 through 18, comes from a story of a man named Charles Simeon, a great preacher and pastor in England in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, a time in which things were really bad, very secular and growing horrible in England. We don't know that or think that, but it was. And Charles Simeon was known as a very godly expositor of God's word, faithful teacher, in the, a minister for ministers and a preacher. He is famous by now, but he had the problem with the tongue. One day at Mr. Hankins' house, a friend of his, he became so irritated at the servant who was stoking the fire that he gave that man a swat on the back to get him to stop. And when he was leaving, the servant got his bridle mixed up with the horse, and Simeon's temper broke out violently against the man. This godly man responding in such a foolish way. Well, Mr. Hankinson, his friend, wrote him a letter as if it was from the servant and put it in Simeon's bag to be found later. And it, he said that he couldn't see how a man who preached and prayed so well could be in such a passion about nothing and wear no bridle on his tongue. He signed it, John, softly. Simeon received that, knew it was from Mr. Hankinson, but he wrote to the servant instead directly and wrote these words. To John softly, from Charles, proud and irritable. I most cordially thank you, my dear friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. And then he wrote to Mr. Hankinson, his friend, I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul nigh to God, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. Pray for me. With that said, Let's pray that God would give us the humility to be reproved, to be challenged, to be moldable as God convicts us. Father, thank you for the prayers that Jason just cried out to you. And so I echo those and I pray that you would bring your word to bear in our lives. Humble us. Give us the humility that comes with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. What would an ideal community look like, a society, as it pertains to relationships? I, when I say community, I mean just, the get, what would it be like to have real community in a community? A place where citizens and leaders and government and laws and enforcement and services and infrastructures, they're living in harmony and care for one another. People listen to each other, even when there's rival opinions, even on politics, people are are listening. People are helping each other out. They're even with, when their perspectives and backgrounds are so different and even convictions, they care for each other. A place where people don't slander or gossip or give each other, and they give each other the benefit of the doubt when they're not certain. A place where they treat others like you would want to be treated yourself. A place and a commitment to to live in peace with one another. Is that what we see in our society today? What about in the home? 
Relationships where there is harmony and care, where husbands love their wives with, like Christ, where they're sacrificially giving of themselves for the spiritual good of their wife and their children, where wives submit for the Lord's sake and they show respect as they would for Christ's sake, and where children honor and obey their parents as unto the Lord, and parents bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and do not provoke their children to anger with hypocrisy and insincerity, but devotion and care and compassion and deliberateness, a place where gossip doesn't happen. Even as families grow and get older and expand and multiply, where they're committed to care for each other and when you give and they give time and attention to one another and they're quick to make right when there's an offense and they forgive and forbear. Is that what we see in our families? In our society? And what about the church? Do we see, would we want similar characteristics where we care for one another, pray for one another, live out the church covenant that we have committed to, where there is giving and forgiving and bearing with one another in love, when there is a serious offense and when there is acknowledgement or sight of sin, we graciously and quickly seek to reconcile by going to that person in Christian love based on a deep relationship and commitment to one another, a place where a, a society, a culture, a home, where called the church, where the broken can come and feel like they can find healing from their brokenness. A place where Jesus is central, both his teaching and the truth and that he saves and rescues as well as Jesus is central and being lived out by one another in humility and grace. A place where very different people are united and humbled by the grace of God. A place that impacts how we talk to and care for one another. I guess I would ask, is that what we see in churches across the country and in our world? I, I come to you in this subject this morning thinking about conflicts and difficulties in our society. As different as our news networks are, our news sources, our politics, churches, Christians and our social media feeds on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you would go to see the chatter one to another. I, I speak in a, in a way in that I feel quite blessed, humbled, and desperately praying that God would take what I feel is by, lar- by and large a peace and a unity that we have experienced at Faith Church, and I pray that it would grow more deep and real, not fake, but deep and real, and would expand as God's word shapes our life with true wisdom. But we don't see that out and about. I I just, just came from trips, both across the continent and a different world, and a different country, and even a couple states from now, bringing my daughter to college, and I talked to pastors and friends where churches are being divided, divided over, divided over masks or no masks, over vaccinations or no vaccinations, over Democrat, Republican, over racism or wokeism or whatever you want to call it, divisions happening all the time all over the place where pastors are being run out of their churches, where churches members are leaving in frustration. There are church splits and division. And just Friday, I wrote to a pastor's network that I'm part of on Facebook, and I just wrote this simple question. I said, I'm working on a sermon that relates to conflict and divisions and in relationships, including the church. What are some examples of conflict divisive behavior and selfishness that you've seen over the past few years, especially in the church. Here's a few samples. One pastor said, I am an old man. I'm an old man. I had an old man, a member, come to a prayer meeting and hijack the prayer time with belittling people and nitpicking. This was two weeks ago. I'm still mad, too mad to speak with him. I've lost all respect for him. This is his personality. And we can say whether he's handling it right or not, there's hurt here. 
Or another pastor, some dude is mad at me because I have an old motorcycle. I've been accused of taking too many vacations. One person posted something pro-cop and another person said, apparently, there's racism in our church. Had a family leave because we didn't choose their name. Another pastor writes, in my ministry with the refugees in this one city, I would have some of them pray for the offering and in their own native language. One attendee was pretty upset and demanded that if we're going to talk to God, we should do it in English. That's, that's, that's among the people of God. Another pastor said, got a family who related to another family by marriage who won't come anymore because the father and the family the wife married into won't allow them to become members. The adult children are required to still obey him according to him. Another one says, I have a guy who shows up for men's Bible study just so he can walk out. <laughs> Three families, here's another one, left because we wanted to reorganize the library. That caused a problem. I've got a list of, uh, one pastor writes, and I can, feel, I can imagine his pain. He says, I I've got a list a mile long, but it triggers my night terrors to get into it. One says, I had a family leave because my wife unknowingly glanced at a woman in the hallway wrong. One more, I recently preached a sermon on forgiveness. A couple days after, a man from a church wanted to meet with me and confront me because eight months ago, I gave him a funny look. He just wanted to follow Matthew 18's correction. Now, these are just a couple days old samples of what you would get from pastors, and you would get from members as well, or you, both from going both ways in frustrations and difficulties. Sadly, since the history of the early church, and we read in 1 Corinthians, you have churches that are dealing with division, strife, things that have torn apart the church and definitely do not show Christ to the world. James is going to wisdom or the lack of wisdom is the heart of our relationships. Wisdom is revealed in the manner of life of how we live and especially in our relationships. Wisdom is not about your IQ, friends. It's not about your university degree or PhD or any advanced degree that you have. Wisdom is not about your age or experience. All of those may come into account in regards to whether you have wisdom or not. All those things might be a factor. But James begins with a question, and look at your passage, verse 13 with me. He begins with this rhetorical question, surely because he's addressing a problem in the church. Who is wise and understanding among you. And he's going to give us two kinds of wisdom. Only one is true wisdom. The other is a kind of fake wisdom. It's a false wisdom. It's a wisdom that's not from God. So let's read these verses, 13 through 18. Follow along as I read. James says this, Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. As we live in a culture where Christianity is even being divided in different factions, happens in even conservative denominations right now over things that has already been mentioned, whether it be on how we handle racism and view that, how we 
view even COVID-19 and how we relate to the government and how we respond and how we do church and how we sing songs and how long our services are and what style of music our services have and what how, whether we have elders or whether we don't have elders, all these types of things, churches are dividing. We can't help but listen up to this passage because James is concerned that he says a mark of maturity, true believers are meant to grow, to become first fruits of Jesus Christ. They are born by God, first or James chapter 1, 18 says, they are born by God by his will and he calls us to, and brings us forth to be his first fruits. And if that's the case, we are going to be developed into a mature type of fruit, a Christian, every one of us, not just a few Christians in the church who are pastors or leaders or pastors or leaders' wives. No, every member in the church is called to grow up into Christ. And he is walking through this. He said, we're going to grow up through the trials we face, chapter one. We're going to grow up as we call out to God and we we face temptation and we endure and we face all of these difficulties and we live out our faith through our practice and we bridle our tongue and we don't show favoritism where we love and show kindness to the rich but to the poor we kind of push to the side and ignore and now he comes to this section he wants us to ask this question that really moves us into chapter four about quarrels and divisions, and he says, do you have wisdom? And I want to ask that to you, faith, church, and friends. Do you have wisdom, true wisdom? If so, James is going to say, show it by your life. And we'll see in this passage by comparing and contrasting two types of wisdom, true and false wisdom. So I'm just going to walk you through this through true and false wisdom from this passage by looking at three categories. We're going to look at characteristics of wisdom, false and true. We're going to look at the fruit of this kind of so-called wisdom and real wisdom. Like, what does it kind of produce? And what's the root of that fruit? Where does it really come from? I pray that it will instruct our hearts and our lives in our relationships, in our home, and in our work, and in this church, and in society. First of all, let's look at the characteristics of wisdom. First of all, false wisdom. We see the characteristics twice of false wisdom in this passage. Look at verse 14. James says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. And then he says it again in verse 16. For where there is, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there you see jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James says false wisdom is marked by, and where you have false wisdom, you're going to have really bitter jealousy. That word Jealousy is the word for zealous. It's the word where we get the word zeal. There, there is something about us being zealous. We should be zealous. We should have a zeal in our lives. We should be earnest and care about having a passion. But he's saying there is a type of zeal that's wrong. It's this bitter zeal. And this is where we get the word idea of jealousy or envy. Envious of others. Others, others' possessions. Others' approval. Others' Others' gifts, others' abilities, others being recognized above me. And he says, there is a wisdom that is false. That, and he was saying, in the church, there are people that have this type of jealousy, this type of envy. And he says, it is a mark that is of false. And he says, it is this idea that I need more comfort, I need approval. I need the praise of others. I need to be recognized. I need love. I need it. And if I don't get it, I am going to punish people, whether it be with the silent treatment or I'm going to be ornery or I'm going to be a problem. And he's saying, there was a problem in this church. And he is addressing this. And he's saying, there is a problem. They think they're wise. They think they're leaders. They think they have it put together. But in reality, they're acting out of a type of bitter jealousy. Every one of us, at the very depths of our hearts, as one person said, sin is its middle letter I. 
It is about I being the center of my world, I being the center of my kingdom. I want you to fit into, and I want you to work around my ways. And he says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is at the heart of this false wisdom. It's where our actions and motives are driven by our own self, our selfishness. It is I want. It can happen when we're driving in our car and we're driving and people, I do this, you do this. They get in our way and they're frustrating us. They should, they should move out of the way when I'm driving. I am meant to be on the road and they are to give me free access for the entire time. How dare that light be so long? How dare that light even be there? I was going there. I want it. I deserve it. And it's in my way. And we do that in our lives. We do that in our conflicts in our home. You deserve to, I deserve for you to respect me to the uttermost. I deserve for you to love me and care for me, we feel. We feel that with, in our interpersonal relationships in marriage and, and in our, to our parents and to our children and to our relationships at church and relationship to others. And he's saying, There are people that are in the church that think they're wise. They think they should be listened to. They think they should lead, and they think that they should govern others. But in reality, what is driving the motives of their heart and what is a characteristic of their life is reality. They are passionate about a lot of things, and what they're, but really, when it comes down to it, they have passions in their hearts, and if they don't get it, they are ugly. So much so that in James will say, and we're going to see this in the coming weeks, in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels and divisions among you? Because it is you have passions that are at war within you. You desire and you do not get, and so you murder. And I don't think he's meaning literally murder, but he's saying you have murderous thoughts within you. I pray that God would help us to all look into the mirror of God's word and see that all of us by nature have a strong tendency to put ourselves first. We want, at the very least, we want a recognition We want approval. And he's saying at the heart of this type of wisdom is to think that we deserve, that we should be put in the first place. And he's saying that this is a mark of false wisdom. He's saying the opposite of this is true wisdom. He says, where there is envy and selfishness, we won't have true wisdom, we'll be filled with folly. He's going to say, true, wis- true wisdom is characterized by something different. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He's going to say, okay, I want, it, I want you to think of your family. Who is full of understanding? Okay, we'll see it by how you live. Don't tell me if you have all the Bible answers. If you know, if you have an answer for every problem in a situation, that's not going to show me whether you have true wisdom. Whether you have an education, whether you've been a Christian a long time, that's not going to show me whether you have wisdom or not. Wisdom is shown by our actions, our living, our way of life, he says. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Remember, that's what James was saying in chapter 3. Don't say you have faith and others have works. Show me your faith by your works, by your generosity to the poor, by your bridling your tongue, by when you go through temptations and trials, you fall on your face and you cry out to God and say, God, I'm going to give thanks to you. Count it all joy when I go through trials because though I do not like this trial, I like what you're producing in this because it's about you and not me. Show me your faith by your actions. And he's going to say, show me your wisdom by what it produces in your life. And he's going to say, a meekness in wisdom. It is a gentle and gracious 
submitting. He says, show wisdom by living and by the weak meekness of wisdom. This is a gentle and gracious, this word meekness of wisdom is this gracious submission first to God and his will and to trust him and to realize that I don't have everything figured out or as Proverbs 3, 7 says, I am not wise in my own eyes, but I seek to fear the Lord. James uses this, this meekness that we are to have, the meekness of wisdom, when he described what it's like to receive God's word and how we ought to receive God's word in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. He's saying, you have been saved. Now, day after day, week after week, receive this word with meekness, meaning don't be a know-it-all, sit before it, be a teachable student, and let it instruct you and grow you and be ready to obey it, knowing this is God's word and you need to submit to it. And here he says, true wisdom is gonna be marked by people who don't run around trying to promote oneself, don't go running around just always working about my needs and my my needs being fulfilled in every way, but instead, in the meekness of wisdom, they show good fruits. And what he says here, he gives, and look at verse 17, he gives characteristics of that wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is both, he says, it's first, it's pure. If you wanna know whether you're growing in wisdom, friend? If this pastor is growing in wisdom, if your leaders are growing in wisdom, if you parents are growing in wisdom, here's a list to start to measure. How are you doing in wisdom? A wise, the wisdom that comes from above does this. It's first pure. It, it means it's going to produce a purity in our lives. So we're, we're above reproach. We're going to... And, and this has to do with the idea of not double-minded. Our devotion is completely, purely, not... not Divided, but purely on God and his grace, on his truth, not on my own agendas. It's not divided there. Not God and me, and so we're double-minded, but it's to God. It's first pure. And then he lists seven other lists. It's peaceable. Wisdom from a God is the kind that produces peace in us. We, we are peaceable people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, Jesus says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It says they are gentle. This is the idea that doesn't mean weak and just giving in to anybody at all times, but what it means is, though I might be strong and I might be even right, I do not exert my rights towards one another, but I am willing to absorb an offense in order to love others and forego my rights just like Jesus did. Though he was the son of God, he went to the cross. This gentleness, meekness has a gentleness. This wisdom has a gentleness. It's not trying to get its own way. And it's open to reason. This has to do with the idea of two sides. Either open to reason that you're quickly willing to obey God's word as it's explained to you, even though it might change your mind because before you were thinking something else, but you go, I don't care what I thought before. What I care is what God says, and that's all that matters. So I am open to be reasoned to by this word. It doesn't mean naive or fickle or quickly changed by weak arguments. It means that when God's word is challenging us, we are quickly changing, even if we have to go back and say, I was wrong in the past. That's the wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is full of mercy. It, I stand before God and I am not crushed, but I am forgiven. I have received mercy. So though I will be with others and I think they're wrong at the moment or they're in a bad place at the moment or they're hurting at the moment or they're hurting me at the moment, I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to show a type of forgiving attitude and patience. It might be even, hey, they're probably having a bad day. I'm not going to take it against them. I'm going to, I'm going to cover their sin. There's a wisdom that says that covers a multitude of sins. Not, not in that just brushing it under the rug, but just realizing 
with patience and mercy, just as God has shown mercy to me. And it says, with good fruits, much fruits, he says, full of good fruits. It means their lives is bearing a type of of graciousness. It is overflowing to others. People see our lives and they say, I want more of you. I want more of what is coming from you. I want to be near you because when I'm with you, there, there is peace, there is mercy, there is gentleness, and it's not what I see in the world. It's, it's the exact opposite that I see in the world. And he says, another, he says there, it's impartial. It's impartial probably has to do with either the fact that all of these words are a little difficult to translate, but as it goes into the English language, but this impartial can either mean I don't show favoritisms to one another. I treat rich and poor with grace because I am not trying to get anything out of you because I have received God's grace in my life and I am going to operate with a type of care and whether you have a lot of money and can help me and whether you have no money and are poor and considered rejects in this world, I care about you. I'm impartial to that. I am going to show mercy to you. And lastly, it's sincere. It's, it's, there's no hypocrisy. It's this wisdom that it's, you are who you are when no one's looking and when everybody's looking. You're not doing it for show. You're real because wisdom has connected to God and he has changed my heart. And I am beginning to become a new person. These are characteristics of what wisdom is. They remind us of Galatians 5, when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the fruits of the Spirit. So James is going to say, are you wise? Characteristics is selfishness and envy and an inner turmoil Uh, an agitation, a frustration of why people are not listening to you, why people think differently from you. If if irritation and a lack of peace and a lack of gentleness and a lack of mercy and and a hypocrisy mark you, folly and false wisdom marks you. If by the grace of God, a quiet spirit that is patient and gentle and listening, quick to change your mind if, if you're instructed and corrected in a certain way, that is the wisdom that is characterized that is true wisdom. Now, he's going to say there's fruit of wisdom. So those are the characteristics of wisdom. But what do the wisdom produce? What, what things come out from it from false and true wisdom. What is its fruit? Well, we see false wisdom's fruit is in verse 16. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, see the fruit? There will be disorder and every vile practice. This idea of word for disorder is the same word in chapter 1 when he says he is in all his ways and therefore he is drifting and shaking and tossed by every wind So we, he says, this lack of wisdom, this wisdom that comes from false wisdom, that's selfish, is driven by your own desires and your own passions, not God, is going to lead to a fruit of life of disorder. And we see this in the world. We see this as in churches. Families that are divided are often divided because selfishness is prevailing selfishness is prevailing in churches. Selfishness, people are not willing to quiet down and listen. They are so quick to take sides and to polarize to the greatest degree rather than to stop and listen and to define terms and see where they can agree and patiently listen and show mercy to one another. And he says, in this false wisdom, it is full of disorder and division and brokenness happens in our marriages. In fact, I love what Tim Keller says. He says, if each spouse says to one another, I will treat my selfishness as the main problem in my marriage, you have great prospects for great things in your marriage. 
if every person in your marriage did that. <laughs> if every person in a church said, any trouble in the church, I am going to view that the main problem could be my own selfishness. I take care of my own heart. I take care of my own attitude, my own way. We, wouldn't have, we don't have disorder. He says the fruit of this false wisdom, this know-it-allism, this you-need-to-listen-to-me selfishness is disorder. It's a church full of fools who are focused on their own agendas, and it leads to a big mess. And he says it leads to every vile practice, evil of every kind. We could, we could look elsewhere to see, because you see, when a heart is full of its own self, when we are full of our own passions, our own desires, rather than God's desires and our love to one another, it, well, it produces a lot of destruction and mess. Matthew 15, I brought this out last week, because out of the mouth comes an evil heart, because what comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart and comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Paul is going to say, instead of the fruit of the Spirit, what often happens in people's lives is the fruit of the flesh, which he says, the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, I warned you before that those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. And so James is, gonna, is, is now instructing and starting to rebuke the church, and it is meant for us as a church to say, in my relationships at home and at the church and at work and in society, what is characterizing my life and what is the fruit of that? And he says the fruit of this false wisdom where self is the center is going to lead to disorder and evil of all kinds. But he's going to say the fruit of wisdom is much different. Look at verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. True, true wisdom results in a harvest of righteousness, he says. This is a peace that comes from God. It, it results in this harvest of righteousness that is a result of a peaceable wisdom, a wisdom that listens and is quick to, to seek to make peace. Seek to humbly listen and care and show gentleness and mercy and kindness. It produces this kind of harvest of righteousness. It is the mark and it is a fruit of those who are truly wise in demonstrating the meekness of wisdom. It was God's will and God's way for his people to be instructed in wisdom. And so he tells in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, when you have leaders, they are to be people of wisdom and understanding, Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is the very words he uses, wisdom, who's wise and who's understanding. And when he calls the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he says, now all these laws and instructions that I'm going to give you in the land, now you need, to, you need to pay careful attention to them and do them. And when you do them, that will be a wisdom and an understanding that you will rise above all those around you as they see the way you interact because you are being shaped not by your own passions and jealous desires, but instead of a surrender to the Lord your God who delivered you out of the real slavery, the slavery of Egypt, and he delivers you from the slavery of your sin. And true wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness that produces... This harvest is manifest to all. It's displayed. You see it by their fruits. Our world needs a church. Our world needs families where husbands and wives and children and parents and fellow members, even when we differ, we have such a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have hard conversations and we confront each other, but we do it with the meekness of wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom, the peaceableness of wisdom. We do it with the full of mercy that's in wisdom. 
We do it with sincerity and wisdom, and it says it produces a fruit of righteousness. The last thing I want you to see is the root of wisdom. Where does this come from? Wisdom doesn't just come from you and I hearing a sermon like this and just saying, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have this kind of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that we truly need, where is its root? Well, we find the false wisdom. He says it comes from three sources, or at least it's overlapped in three sources. Look at verse 15. Here's the origin of wisdom that is false. This is the wisdom that, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual and demonic. The reality is the wisdom of selfishness, the wisdom that comes from not your tongue being out of control all the time with slander, gossip, evil speech and criticism and grumbling and complaining and arguing comes from a heart that lacks wisdom and is full of selfishness. In reality, as James had said earlier, that tongue comes from hell. He's going to say, it's demonic here. It's stirred up by Satan. Just like that tongue is from hell, so is our false wisdom. And oh, I think that Satan wants to come and bring a demonic thinking in churches that are, are lacking peace and gentleness and being quick to listen instead are quick to talk, quick to give opinions, quick to label each other in a certain category and quickly divide. I was at a church in Florida this summer on our vacation, a small little Presbyterian church. It was wonderful, good preaching, all that. But as I talked to one of the members, they were saying, yes, we divided from this denomination because they're doing this, this, and this. I was like, okay. I know a little bit about that story. And then they brought out another denomination and they do this. And, and so quickly, they made these judgments and threw everybody into one category and said, they're all this way and it's against the Bible. And I was thinking, that is, that is the kind of fractured mindset that divides churches all of the time. There is standing for truth that's really important and standing on convictions that are really important. But far too often, our convictions are driven by selfish motives that do not listen and are not patient and peaceable. I believe that Satan wants to divide our families and our churches, and we need to humbly fall to our knees and say, God, give me grace. Give us grace as a church to not be driven by demonic wisdom, which is not wisdom, of course. Or he says it's earthly. That means it's limited to things that are under the sun rather than the maker of all things. It's just earthly. There's just, it doesn't last beyond this earth and it's unspiritual or the King James says it's sensual. It, is, it just comes from our flesh, our own desires. It's, it, might, it might be coming from the wisdom of this world. It might come from just mere human reason, not from the revelation of God's word. So much so that Paul will write to a young church in Corinth and he'll say, I can't address you as spiritual people. I hope you would never, I hope we, we can't say that true of this church. What if, uh, what if the Apostle Paul or Jesus would address this church, dress this pastor, dress us and say, brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, not solid food for you are not ready and not even now you're not ready for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? Oh, our heart, let, let us not trust our hearts to just think that we're just, we're good. Far too often we're prone to wander towards our own thinking, our own way, our own selfishness, our own false wisdom. We can be like Proverbs 3, 7, wise in our own eyes, but we're not really wise. But true wisdom, where is its source? You see that, verse 17. You see it a few places. He says, but the wisdom is from above. 
It's from above. It's, it's from heaven. And where's heaven? It's we're from God the Father through Jesus Christ that brings peace, peaceableness. It comes by the Holy Spirit. We could go to Paul in chapter 4 of Ephesians. as He says, we, you are united in one people and it changes everything because his spirit abides in us. And remember what James says at the chapter 1 when he says, if any of you lack wisdom, friends, we lack wisdom of ourselves. We lack wisdom when we go through trials. We're going to lack wisdom when things happen. If a big, if a big pandemic comes, if the pandemic comes again and everybody's saying we should close church, it's going to take wisdom. It's going to take wisdom to think about mass. It takes wisdom to think about all these things. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. And that wisdom will be full of meekness and patience and not judgmentalism towards one another, but it will show mercy and grace as God has shown mercy and grace to us. He says it is from above. And James knows that what is from above, he, he, he's rooted into the Old Testament as he knows and he wants, us, he wants us to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to I end with this exhortation to you all, to all of us, to myself and to us as a church, the church of Jesus Christ. The wisdom that comes from above is a wisdom that fears the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools, display, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Those who seek the Lord and seek wisdom with all their heart, then they will understand the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 2.5. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And I began with this. The fear, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You want to know the mark of a wise teenager? Far wiser than a senior who has not yet learned to grasp this is when that teenager says, I am gonna day by day trust in the Lord with all my heart and I'm gonna lean not on my own understanding. I'm not gonna be wise in my own eyes. I'm gonna fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 3. I will, in all my ways, I will acknowledge him. That is the wise mother or father. That is the wise boss that is the wise church member or spouse that says, I would be so foolish to trust in myself. I would, I'd be so foolish to lean on my own understanding and way of things. I must acknowledge him and seek him in all my ways. And I must trust him with all my heart. And all, of course, that only begins as we understand that I become a child of God by trusting in him to save me from my sins and realize that I could never, ever be wise enough for God to save me. But I must accept that I am a fool and that he saves fools and that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for me and he rose from the dead for me. That if I cling to his free gift of which he offers and he says, all I do need to do is receive it by faith, just a little faith, a faith of a mustard seed, just grab onto it. He saves me, makes me his child, and changes me and starts to make me new so that I can, with new eyes and new hearts and new desires, realize that as I trust God, I realize that my old selfish ways are suicidal to my life. My wanting to be the center of my kingdom and my world and my agenda, my way needs to be surrendered to Jesus Christ and it's the best thing for my joy and for my gladness and for my existence. I am gonna trust in him with all my heart and I will not lean on my own understanding. Oh, that God would help us in the days to come. God would help us this week. We are at peace this week only by God's grace. And our, we have enough foolishness in our hearts, all of us, left to ourselves to make a big mess of everything. That's the kind of mi mindset we need to have 
And therefore, we need to say, oh, God, please give us grace. Give us mercy. One of the core values that we pinpointed as a church as for leaders, for pastors, for elders, for deacons, for leaders and members in this church is wisdom. And we wrote this out as a description of wisdom. Wisdom is both needed and required to be a pastor and a shepherd of God's work, and I would say of being a faithful church member. Wisdom is not always expressed by having all the answers, but through a prayerful pursuit of God's wisdom that most clearly is given in his word. Wise leaders, and I want to add wise Christians, become wise only through the fear of the Lord. And that happens through a deep devotion to God, to his will above all things. Wise leaders and even wise Christians and members of this church learn to weigh a matter carefully. They're slow to speak and quick to listen. They're ready, sometimes ready with an answer, but never too proud to admit that they don't know it at the moment. Wisdom is not using the Bible as a proof text for every situation. Wisdom is not, but over time and in the context of deepening relationship with God, his word, his world, his people, and his creation. Friends, wisdom comes from above. May God give it to us. It comes, from a man, it comes to a man or a woman who fears the Lord above all else. It comes to a teenager who learns to walk in the word and meditate on it day and night. It's when we fear the Lord, we know that God is the only one whose ways is saving. We, and he knows what's best. We know that we're sinners saved by grace and everything we have is of God's grace and of God's mercy. And therefore, we do not think so highly of ourselves, but we think of ourselves as servants of others. And if there's anything good in us, it's from God and it's a gift from God not to boast about, but to bless others with. Wisdom that comes from a God above knows that we live in a world that's broken And wisdom from above knows that we are going to face people this week that will test our wisdom. It will test our patience, test whether we're going to be gentle and forgiving and full of mercy and quick to listen and more quick to pray than to preach at them. Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived. And yet he is described, he describes his own heart in this way. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle, that's meek, and I am lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's our only hope to be wise is to daily come to that gentle and lowly heart of Jesus, receiving his mercy, going to his word, giving it to others.